You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Good evening, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Chelsea. We're the Good Evening Girls. You're listening to your favorite weekly Podword Crosscast. Yeah. Called Two Girls, One Crossword. Perfect. Yes. Beautiful. Woo. Nicely delivered. Thank you. All right. Especially considering I'm really tired. Yeah. Well, we were here early yesterday. We were. Working on something a little special for you guys. We were. The first special thing of this variety, in fact. Yeah. We could just tell them. So (laughs) we have like a crossword interview. Um, We'll play it after our hits and shits. Yes. So stick with us. This is going to be fun, especially for all the constructors out there. For anybody who's in the crossword community, you'll be excited to see or hear who we interview. So stay tuned. This will be coming after hits and shits. All right. Now you're talking it up too much. I know. I don't want to talk it up too much. Okay. Um, Do you have any corrections corners? No. (laughs) Do you? I feel like someone told me something that I should correct, and then I told them that I wasn't going to do it anyway. Oh, it was probably Nicole. Sorry, Nicole. I can't remember what you told me to correct, but I'm not doing it. All right. (laughs) How about hits and shits? Yeah, let's do some hits and shits. I have mostly hits, actually. Cool. Let's do it. I don't have that many. Um, From from yesterday's uh, New York Times, February 5th, I liked Seven Across, where you might go through withdrawal. And it was ATM. Nice. And that was crossed with a cool one, too, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. So then seven down was, it was crossed with bank number or N-O dot, and it was account. Which we, we like when those things kind of happen when you. Yeah. I like, I feel like I like the ATM one because ATM is a common fill word. And I like when you see clues that you don't normally right. see. Right. Because if, if you have to use like just regular fill and we like to see that, you know, originality come out and the personality of the constructor. Hopefully the constructor wrote that. Yeah. I feel like the hardest one to have an original clue for is Oreo. Yeah. And we've <laughs> seen people some... try, though. They, they've had some, some some good ones. Yeah. Usually in the indie ones, you get the best for Oreo. Yeah. Like, I've seen when it was like, a cookie, oh, you know exactly yeah. what it is. Just <laughs> fill it in. <laughs> and that's fun. Um, I liked, there was a uh, incubator from Thursday, January 30th by Janie Smolian, um, 13 down, the blank, and then in uh, parentheses, Homeric. Epic Translation by Emily Wilson, 2017, publishing first, publishing's first by a woman. And so the answer is The Odyssey, which is, you know, whatever. We've seen, I've seen Odyssey in a craft before. But again, that clue, the way that they clue it, they talk specifically about Emily Wilson's translation from 2017, yeah. which is really cool. And um, I haven't read this yet, and I've been meaning to read it because I went through a period of time where my depression was telling me that I wanted to reread all of the classics, and so I got through a lot of them, but I never got to this translation. But I do want to talk about why it's important for women to translate, um, and this is basically my only thing that I'm going to talk about because we have a longer episode today. Okay. Um, I'm going to read you a little quote from an essay from at, that was published on Plowshares at Emerson College called The Complicated Radical- Radicalism of Emily Wilson's The Odyssey by Janie Tracy. I'm going to read you like a quick little paragraph. Quote, this is so, let's see, do, 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 do. In arguably the most disturbing section of the poem, Telemachus murders all of the slaves who slept with Penelope's suitors. Wilson's predecessors translated a descriptor of the young women as a misogynistic slur, sluts, whores, and creatures, to name a few. Some would argue that they were simply reproducing the sexism of Homer's era, but according to Wilson, the ancient Greek word had no such dehumanizing connotation. Rather, it simply refers to, quote, female ones. There was a certain misogyny in Homer's time. There was certainly misogyny in Homer's time, but this specific type of sexual shaming is an imported type of sexism. So instead, Wilson translates this word as girls, which both maintains a more neutral tone of the original Greek word and in context makes the girl's death feel brutally harrowing. So here's a quote from her translation. So the girls, their heads all in a row, were strung up with the noose around their neck to make their death in agony. They gasped, feet twitching for a while, but not for long. So switch out the word girls for any of those misogynist slurs, and you have a totally different reading of the scene, which I think is important for those biases to be called out in original translations or, you know, translations that you might be taught in school. Yeah, definitely. That's goes back to what we talked about in our previous episode, or one of our episodes about translating. Exactly. I think that was, oh, it was one of our early episodes. I think it was called Same, Same, But Different. Yeah. was the name of it? Check it out. Um, Well, another clue from that same crossword that I felt that also related to an earlier episode of ours was um, 10 down, 
regional dialect like Creole or Pidgin. Oh, yeah. And the answer was um, Patois or yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Which is, um, I have the definition for it. But did you talk about that in? I talked you, a you, very little bit about Patois because we were talking about, um, it's the episode Spectacular Vernacular from episode two. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about, oh. Creole? No. Because that's an the, exa- Well, that was the topic. I can't remember what the topic was. Uh, oh, code switching? Code switching. It was yeah. code switching. Yeah. Uh, so, Patois is the dialect of the common people of a region differing in various respects from the standard language of the rest of the country. Yeah. So, Creole is an example of that. And then Pigeon, I had, I think you talked about that. I did, yeah. Okay. Very little bit. Um, it's spelled P-I-D-G-I-N, but it's a grammatically simplified means of communication that develops between two or more groups that do not have a language in common. Yes. Um, a lot of it is used for trade right. um, or when it's like two groups in the same country or region that speak different languages, but they need to communicate with each other. Right. Which is really interesting. It is, yeah. I mean, I think about like how you've communicated with people you don't speak the same language with. You find ways to communicate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you look up a picture of tampons on your phone and then you <laughs> point at it. <laughs> Speaking from personal experience. <laughs> like, do you have these, please? Uh, well, um, I think I have... I have a couple more if you think we have time. What do you think? I can do... What about two shits? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Thursday, New York Times, January 30th, Emily Carroll, 10 down, Snickers was Tehees. Oh. Again, we talked about this last week, but there's a little bit of a thing going on on Twitter about it, like... Okay, can we just all agree how Tehee is spelled? It's... How is it... It's... How is it not T-E-E-H-E-E? That because is a really great question. You're making the same sound for the T and the he. Right. Or T E H E? No, that doesn't work either. But Te-he. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very strange. And another one from that puzzle, um, 52 across, like much stand up comedy. And the answer was non PC. Oh, right. Right. And I have a problem with the idea of political correctness. It's just a way for people who are trying to be like, homophobic or racist or yeah, in to be general. like everyone's so sensitive these days i miss back in the day when we could be yeah. <laughs> uh, racist and homophobic and no one said anything right exactly and so if you have <clears throat> a comedian that is like saying all this like horrible stuff on stage and they're like what's with this pc culture blah 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 no we're just telling you that you can't be a racist homophobe anymore sorry yeah also it most stand-up comedy is not quote, not PC right. at all. A lot of stand-up comedians, like successful ones, are really smart and really, uh, I mean, they make a lot of good points with their right. comedy. Eric Andre is completely <laughs> absurd and ridiculous, right? but not offensive right. to exactly. marginalized groups. Right, exactly. So, hello. Happy day. Um, okay, I have a hit that we can end on that I just thought was funny. Um, this is from the American Values Club crossword on February 5th. Uh, by Ben Tausig, and it was seven down. Major reseller of corkscrews, nail clippers, and snow globes, probably. And it was TSA. <laughs> That's another one. TSA is another common uh, feel. Yeah. So I liked that clue for it. Very nice. It fun. Very nice. So, with that being said, we're going to hop into our interview. So, Blues go do. We can do. All right. Hi, everyone. We are here with our first ever interviewee guest. Very, very first. This is a big, big moment for us. Um, we have Rachel Fabie here from Not A Crossword Twitter, who we talked about two episodes ago. Yes, because apparently our logo <laughs> is not, in fact, a crossword. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, shouted her out and then realized that our own logo is not a crossword. Hey, um, we can't all be perfect, so. No, I've never. It's still a great logo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate your endorsement. <laughs> when we get some more money together, we'll have Rosa redesign it. Yes, perfect. <laughs> um, so Rachel is based in Syracuse, right? Is that right? Is that correct, Rachel? Yep. Syracuse, cool. New York. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about, like, what you do in Crosswords currently? Sure. Uh, So I am an ethics professor at a med school here in Syracuse. Um, But in terms of crossword stuff, I've been constructing for about a year and I also review crosswords. So I occasionally sub for Rex Parker on his crossword blog. And then I'm the New Yorker reviewer on Diary of a Crossword Fiend. 
Amazing. And I feel like a lot of our listeners don't realize that people review crosswords. Um, and so they do. And if you're not reading um, Diary of a Crossword Fiend or the Rex Parker blog, I would totally recommend it just so you can get a sense of, you know, the daily tribulations and trials. And Yeah, that's kind of how we got Like, we were just doing crosswords casually, and then we started getting into the community, realizing... Yeah. You know, goes deeper than that. It does much deeper. Much. Um, okay. So how how did you get into doing crosswords? Because I'm sure you probably did them for a while before you became a constructor. Yeah, I did. I I started doing them when I was probably like a freshman in high school uh, because I was trying out for the Jeopardy teen tournament, and I was like, this is exactly how I should prepare for trying yeah. out for the Jeopardy teen tournament. Which you know, in retrospect, was probably not the best study plan, um, but that is when I started doing them. Did you start with the New York Times? I did. It was the only one I actually had access to nice. at the time. Yep. Did you make it onto the Teen Jeopardy? So, no, it was sort of like the tragedy of my teenage years that I did not make it onto, <laughs> the, onto the Teen Tournament. I'm sorry to bring it up. <laughs> no, but I did. I was on better. Jeopardy last year. So. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. Actually, it was a year ago, like next week. So I, I made Man, it eventually. If- I can't believe you didn't lead with that. I feel like if I was on Jeopardy, I would mention it in like every <laughs> conversation I was ever in. That's amazing. So now I have to find your episode. So we will February find you. 18th and 19th because I won. Spoiler alert. Amazing. Oh, you won? Congrats. Oh my I mean, God. We're, we're a year late, but congrats. Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, okay. So then what was your inspiration behind creating the Not a Crossword Twitter account? Uh, Well, so I had been noticing sort of inaccurate representations of crosswords. And then on another crossword podcast that I won't name, um, they were discussing a few other ones that I hadn't seen. And so I went back and looked for them. And it was just, you know, there were a lot of examples of people trying to use crosswords to, you know, build their characters to be like, look how smart this character is. They do the New York Times crossword in pen, but then they were showing crosswords that were not crosswords. And then the, sort of the final straw for me was this webcomic that I've been reading probably since you know I started doing the crossword when I was 15. Um, and it just like the same day that I was already thinking about this, this webcomic had a not crossword featured in one of the Shame. panels. <laughs> and I was like, all right, that's it. I'm doing it. And then I just started the, started the Twitter. I do remember seeing, I think you tweeted, like, I'm thinking about doing this. And then maybe, <laughs> I don't know, you, you replied to it and you're like, I'm doing it. And I'm like, yes, good. This is good. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of a lot of responses saying, yes, please do that. So, you know. It's doing really well and we really enjoy it. Sometimes it's just wild to see what people think a crossword looks at. And I'm like, looks like, and I'm like, have you ever looked a crossword in the eye? Well, you just <laughs> wonder these like, you know, like prop departments, why don't they just use a regular, is it? Like a copyright thing? They can't just use a real crossword? It must be. Um, but I feel like... Because sometimes it's in the background. It doesn't even matter what's written in the... So it's like it's not like you right. need anything right. specific. If it's right. like in TV or film, it, it's either... if It's props if it's being touched and it's set deck if it's not being touched. So it's either of those departments and somebody somewhere should be doing the research. Yeah. Yeah. My only um, theory is that it has to be a copyright thing because there's no yeah. excuse for some of these. Yeah. There's not. Well... Like, we should make a bunch of uh, crossword templates for people and to use. And like, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. I can't make an actual crossword, but I can make a <laughs> fake one. Yes. <laughs> um, have you seen the crossword mysteries on Lifetime? No, I don't have access to Lifetime, and I can't figure out how to watch it streaming. So if you have any pro tips on how to get it, I'm all ears. Well, I use my parents' cable login to... Same. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you know someone's cable login, you can watch it on, like, Lifetime's website, and they have a streaming app, too. Yes, so we're, we're moochers, basically. But yeah. we also... It took us a while. We were like, we're millennials, and we can't figure out how to watch this darn television show. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a struggle. Um, okay, so what are some of the most common offenses you see, then, in these, like, fake not-crosswords? Like, how do you know this is not... A real crossword. So I think I think the most obvious ones are when they call like a crisscross puzzle a crossword, and that's where you have it's like the kind of crossword puzzle in quotes that you did in elementary school, where it's just like a word that occasionally has another word crossing it. You know right, what I'm talking yeah. about? Where it's just like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. individual words, and people will call that a crossword, and it's like just not <laughs> right. I mean, I guess technically the words are crossing, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so I'd say that's the worst offense, but you also see a lot of these fake grids in TV and whatever that have a lot of unchecked squares. So you'll just have like one square that doesn't have anything crossing it. And that's obviously right. illegal in crosswords or like two letter words. Like you don't see the word, but you see that it's a two letter space and it's like, that's also not legal. Um, yeah. I feel like that's what I noticed in a lot of the things you post. It's like just the two square spaces like Mm -hmm. a bunch in a row it's like yeah that wouldn't actually yeah and i guess if you're not doing crosswords regularly people would you would never know i mean they're probably just taking an excel sheet and putting in some black squares yeah squares i'm guessing um okay so if you have anything like any advice to give these people who are making crosswords for as props and stuff are there any like certain things that you would tell them this is what you should do I mean, look at a crossword puzzle, yeah. right? Like, just Google it. There are so right, many like, blank first. grids. Um, Love it. So what are, what are if you had to say, like, what are the things that actually make a crossword a crossword? Uh, Grace and I obviously do not construct, so we know generally what makes a crossword just by doing them regularly. regularly. But, like, we, when we sat down to do a, if we were to make a crossword, we would have no idea even where to start or what, if there are rules. Like you said, it's illegal to have two like a two square or oh yeah is there anything else that's illegal in crosswords yeah i mean and all of these rules are like flexible right like i had a puzzle last summer with incubator where i had two i broke two rules one was that i had four two letter sections like little two by two squares that were walled off from the rest of the grid which is also illegal all of your grid is supposed to interconnect um but you know i had two two by two squares that were cut off because it was part of the theme. It was like a big cancer, like the horoscope symbol for cancer. So in the middle of that, there were these circles, you know, so you can break the rules. The rules, you know, are are there as long as they're useful. Um, And you sort of... I've seen rules like that broken too. Like where there's like one Especially in the incubator. Yeah. I feel like they do a lot of fun things. Yeah. But you have to know the rules before you can break them, according to Picasso, right? (laughs) (laughs) According to a lot of people, apparently. (laughs) I think that's right. Um, The other thing that you see broken a lot is is that it needs to be symmetrical. So, like, in in these TV props, they'll have totally asymmetrical grids. Um, Mm -hmm. And that symmetry is traditionally, like, a 180-degree rotational symmetry, uh, which means, like, you know, if it folds over a diagonal line through the middle, it will be symmetrical. Sometimes you'll see puzzles that have 90 degree rotational symmetry, which means all four corners, if you like folded them in, would be symmetrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you'll see just left-right symmetry, so you could fold it in half down the middle uh, mm-hmm. and it would be symmetrical, but sort of that 180 degree rotational symmetry is your your standard. Oh, I never like, know- I mean, I, I know that crosswords are often symmetrical, but I never really thought about it. Yeah. We're learning something here. Oh my gosh! One step closer to being constructor. <laughs> um, alrighty. Do you have anything else that you want to add about crosswords, not crosswords, or where we can follow you? Yeah, you can plug uh, your stuff. Sure. Um, well, one last point on not crosswords, and this is another thing that I've seen a lot of that I just find really funny, is that you'll have floating numbers. Like, it'll be in the middle of white space. You'll just have a number because people don't realize that the numbers need to go at the start of words. Oh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so that, that one's just, I just find that one really funny. Like, the rest of them yeah. are just like, you don't know what a crossword looks like. But that one is like, you don't know what a crossword is. Right. Functionally, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> I like that one. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, and then in terms of following me so you've got at not a crossword with underscores between the words um that's where i catalog these not crosswords or you could use the hashtag not a not a crossword um and then my personal twitter is at fabioethics so it's my last name fabi f-a-b-i sort of portmanteaued with the word bioethics because i am a bioethicist amazing Cool. If you're not following, follow. And if you see inaccurate representations of crosswords, let her know. Let her know. Use the hashtag. Let's stop this crime. <laughs> Let's stop it. Um, all right. Well, we really appreciate you coming on to chat with us. Yeah. Thanks for uh, talking with us. Yes. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. 
And we're back. How did you like that, kids? Let us know. Tweet us. Yes. If you ever feel the need to be interviewed by us. <laughs> On mic or off. <laughs> let us know. If you just want to talk, yeah, chat. We are here to listen. So, um, But it has to be early in the morning. It does. So like, very <laughs> early in the morning. So if you're not a morning person, then we, we can't do it. I'm sorry. Apologies. Yeah. Early morning or like 3 a.m. Yeah. Those Which are, is early morning. Yeah. Technically. Technically. I feel like 3 a.m. is, is late at night. night. Yeah. <laughs> Grace is like, oh, this morning, oh, I went to bed so early last night. And I was like, what time? <laughs> 11.30 p.m. And I'm like, I'm climbing into bed at like 9.45. 11.30 is early for me. Yeah. I'm well, a I night owl. I can't help it. Well, technically, like I climb in bed at 9.45 and I'm not putting my phone And down you're watching until... TikToks for like three hours. <laughs> I know. And you can tell I'm awake because I'm sending Grace TikToks at all fucking hours of the day. Um, that's my life, though. So don't judge me. Cool. Should we get in? Should we flip our coin? Let's flip the coin. Let's see what we got. Let's see. I wonder if we got the same one. I could see us maybe both picking this one. <laughs> Can anybody <laughs> guess? Two out of three again. Yeah. Okay. Can anybody guess what it landed on? So it landed on heads. Heads, heads. again. Wait, the... flip it one more time. I just want to see. Tails. Tails. So I still won, but that's that's fate telling me it's my turn. Okay, so my topic comes from the Friday New York Times, January 31st puzzle by John Gazetta and Michael Hawkins. Is that where yours is from? No. Ah, <laughs> cool. So, 35 across, inventors of the compass and movable type. Oh, I saw that clue. The answer is Chinese, which is cool. I was like, oh, nice. So I did a little bit of research about this, and I found what is called the, great, the four great inventions. Ooh. Of all time. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the four great inventions, which were all invented by the Chinese, which two of them are compass and movable type. Can you guess what the other two four great inventions are invented by the Chinese? Sliced bread. Yes. And um, bicycles. Yes. No. Both of those are wrong. <laughs> Damn it. Would you like me to tell you? Yes. Well, okay. I know you're going to tell me anyways. Yes. So, widely regarded as inventions that have changed the world is the compass, gunpowder, mm. papermaking, and printing. Okay. That's fair. Okay. Okay. So, I'm going to talk about each of these inventions in turn. So, we'll get there. But I want to talk a little bit about the concept of, quote, the four great inventions. It reminds me a little bit of the great wonders. I was kind of like, who... <laughs> freaking decided that these were the four greatest inventions. No, like, not, like... It's not official. It's not official. Um, I mean, how can anything really be official? There needs to be, like, one governing body of the entire <laughs> world that then decides, you know, makes right. all these lists. Like, right. top best exactly. so, sushi restaurants. It's all a bit subjective, but it's also a little bit more than that. So... How did this concept come about? It was common in Europe, like, basically up to the 16th century for people to kind of talk about really great inventions, particularly the most important inventions that kind of brought us from the Dark Ages to the Scientific Revolution. And those inventions were gunpowder printing and the compass. Well, at that time, I mean, there was still so much stuff to be invented. I know. I know. Um, and it was believed that all of these inventions originated in Europe. Um, for instance, Germany for printmaking, like Gutenberg's Press, which was the 1400s. Francis Bacon, who you guys might know as the father of the scientific method, mm -hmm. he wrote, quote, It is well to observe the force and virtue and consequences of discovery, and these are to be seen nowhere more con conspicuously than in those three which were unknown to science unknown to the ancients, and of which the origins, though recent, are obscure and inglorious, namely printing, gunpowder, and the mariner's needle, which is the compass. These three have changed the whole face and state of things throughout the world. And he wrote that um, in a book that was published in 1620. So everybody was, like, talking about these inventions, but they were like, the ancients knew nothing about them. Europe just invented them. We're so smart. Not true. Um, by the 19th century, it has become widely accepted that these inventions all originated in China, particularly ancient China. So in 20th century is kind of when the list, the idea of the four great inventions, was canonized in history by a noted British biochemist, historian, and sinologist, Joseph Needham. What is sinology? It's an academic discipline that focuses on the study of China, primarily Chinese, primarily through Chinese thought, language, lit, culture, and history. And from my research, it often refers to, like, Western scholarship. 
so Western scholars talking about China. Mm -hmm. So Joseph Needham was this biochemist. He was at Cambridge University. Three Chinese scientists came to Cambridge in 1937 um, to finish their degrees. Um, and he met, and one of them, who was Lu Guidian, I believe that's how you pronounce it. I tried to look it up, um, was a daughter of a Nanjing pharmacist, kind of taught Needham how to speak Chinese and ignited his interest in Chinese history, especially its ancient technological and scientific past. Um, and then because his interest was spiked, he mastered the study of classical Chinese, which, okay, cool. Wait, so, so you just learn Chinese and then... He's a biochemist at Cambridge. I mean, I guess you can okay. learn Chinese. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I've been trying to learn Irish for the last four months, and I'm like, I can't even say I love you yet. <laughs> Um, in so in 1940, so throughout the 1940s, Needham like traveled all through China and like visited all these archaeological sites and like studied and all these cool things. And by 1948, he came back to Cambridge and was like, "Hey, I want to write a project about China." And so Cambridge University Press was like, "Let's do it." And so he wrote a book series um, called. Basically, the series is Science and Civilization in China. It was seven volumes that Needham actually worked on. And the project is still going on to this day at the Needham Research Institute, directed by Professor Mei Jun. So it's Very a thing cool. that's still going. Um, perhaps one of the most famous things Needham is, like, famous for, outside of, like, his study of Chinese civilization, was what has now become known as the Needham question, which is basically, quote, the essential problem is why modern science had not developed in Chinese civilization or Indian, but only in Europe. So I can't really get into like the depth of this question, but he's basically asking why didn't China beat Europe into the scientific revolution? Um, <clears throat> he's suggesting that chi ancient China had an incredible amount of progress and advancement from the early centuries up until basically the 14 to 1600s, and then they kind of plateaued. Mm -hmm. And that's around the time where in Europe, everything exploded. We went from the Dark Ages to the Scientific Revolution. He's asking, why did Europe continue doing all these amazing things, and why did China plateau? Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of like, what? So first, I think it's important to like school your idea of like what advancement is. You know, the idea that like, China, quote unquote, plateaued in during this time period, and Europe was the only, you know, continent that was making any sort of advancements in science and technology. Yeah, like China was continuously striving and advancing. You can like look at any list of any Chinese inventions from the beginning of time until now, and you can see that they invented some of the most important things in the world. Um, but perhaps they weren't advancing at such a rapid nature as Europe. But I think it's oversimplified to suggest that they weren't China, advancing at all. Yeah, that China lost to anyone in regards to scientific progress. Um, there's an author, um, Andre Gunder Frank, he wrote Reorient, um, which kind of argued that Needham's contributions to like Chinese study was like really important, but he struggled to kind of break free from these ideas that Europe was exceptional mm -hmm. and that like, yeah, Chinese, China is really cool, but like they were cool, like, in the ancient world, and then, like, Europe was, like, much cooler in, like, contemporary times. Um, so it's kind of, like, we have to think about that. Um, but, like, yeah, like, the question is, why did China have such incredible, you know, advancements up until the 1600s, but then, like, they kind of didn't do anything? And it's the idea that Needham thought modern science was basically mathematics, hypotheses, like, advancements of, like machinery um, and experimentation versus the idea of um, society and tradition. Mm -hmm. And so I think you like you're kind of just like pitting Western and Eastern cultures against each other and like, yeah, you know, I mean, this was me doing a very, very minimal <laughs> dive. I I can only read so many things on JSTOR without a login. Yeah. So I would suggest that we just think critically about things we read from white scholars, first of all. Second of all, um, I don't know what I'm talking about, and I would love to learn more. <laughs> so if there is somebody out there that knows more about Needham or Chinese advancement throughout like the 1600s until now, please let me know. But I do think it's really interesting and to be said that 
Needham wrote about these four great inventions being like, they wrote these, they did these really amazing things, but then they kind of did nothing after that. And it's like, what? No. And it's just been accepted as like, oh, yeah, he's right. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about the four great inventions. Shall we? Let's do it. Okay. We're going to start with the compass. Do you know what a compass is? Yeah. So <laughs> most people do. So it's an instrument used for navigation, kind of like orienting yourself like in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's relative to the cardinal direction. So north, east, south, and west. <laughs> you got it. I'm like, huh? Never eat sour worms. Mine is never eat sour watermelons. Hmm. Interesting. Regional things. Am I right? Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. So the diagram on the face of the compass is called a compass rose. Um, and for any millennial there, you probably know somebody who has a compass rose tattooed on their body somewhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and the diagram shows those cardinal directions. The magnetic compass is what was invented in China. Um, and it was invented in circa 206 BC, which is a really, really long time ago. Um, especially when you had, like, in the 1600s, all these Europeans thinking that they invented the compass. Yeah. LOL. So a magnetic compass was in China was not originally used for navigation. It was originally used for different types of divination and fortune telling, Ooh. which is really cool. And the earliest Chinese magnetic compasses people believe were used to kind of, like, harmonize buildings in accordance to feng shui. <gasps> I love that. Which I also like. Um, later... The compass was used for navigation in the Song Dynasty in the 11th century. Um, And the first uses of the compass, according to Western Europe and Islamic culture, was around 1190. Mm -hmm. So how does it work? So it functions as like a pointer to magnetic north. I'm talking about a magnetic compass. There's different types of compasses. We're talking about a magnetic compass. It functions as a pointer to magnetic north, which is like the local magnetic center of like a certain area. So magnetic north isn't true north and the angle of variance between where true north is and where magnetic north is um, varies depending on where you are in the world and that's about as much as i understand the difference between true north and magnetic north so if anybody knows can like explain it <laughs> I better there was just a magnetic pole in the north pole <laughs> so if anybody can explain it better then please let me know um, so if you're using a, a magnetic compass it'll point you north but it's not a hundred percent true north you're, you're going to get there eventually, I hope. Um, so basically, like, the it works because there's a magnetic field in the Earth, right? And that magnetic field exerts a force on the needle, which mm-hmm. pushes the needle towards magnetic north. It's the same thing that causes the aurora borealis. Exactly. Those dang magnetic fields. <laughs> yeah. God bless them. Yes, thank God. Um, so prior to, you know, introducing the compass... If you had to, like, find out where you were, you kind of had to, like, look at where you were and be like... You had to look at the sun, probably. Yeah, it's like, okay, okay, well, okay, there's that star and there's that tree. I must be, like, five horse lengths away from my house. <laughs> so we never would have survived back then. <laughs> no, we wouldn't have. I have a hard time surviving and I got Google Maps now. Yeah. Like, you kidding? No. Um, the next invention is gunpowder. We all know what gunpowder is. It was, it was the very first explosive to have been developed by Chinese alchemists searching for the elixir of immortality. Ooh, whoops. It's really, <laughs> yeah. um, it's really cool because, like, you have these emperors in the Chinese, um, like, dynasties that were looking to, like, live for the rest of their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And they had these alchemists that were kind of, you know, just inventing all these different things, like throwing things in pots and basically creating all these different... Elixirs. Elixirs. Um, and by doing that, they found fucking gunpowder. Fa- um, it was discovered in the Tang Dynasty, which was the ninth century. Although there are um, the earliest record of it actually being written down with like a like a formula was the Song Dynasty, which is the eleventh century. Um, and then once it kind of was invented, it spread rapidly across the globe throughout Asia, Middle East, and Europe. And we think it's probably because of the Mongol conquest during the thirteenth century. People were like, we could use that. We could use this. Um, so the earliest possible reference to gunpowder, this is not confirmed, but it's like kind of written down. People think they could be talking about gunpowder here. Um, was in 142 AD during the Eastern Han Dynasty. And there's an alchemist, Wei Boyang, wrote about a substance that kind of had the properties of gunpowder. Um, and he mixed a bun- like three powders together, and he explained that they would, quote, fly and dance once they were mixed together. And uh, 
scholars believe that it's gunpowder because gunpowder takes three ingredients. It's like a three-powder mixture. And so they're like, oh, what else could it be? Mm-hmm. But the first confirmed reference was, um, like I said, in the Tang Dynasty in 808 um, by an alchemist uh, named Shengzhu Jindan Miju. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it was a combination of six parts sulfur to six parts saltpeter to one part birthwort. Oh. So if you want to make gunpowder, <laughs> all you need get gather all your birth warts and yeah. <laughs> uh, go to town. And this is what the alchemist wrote after people were using this formula. Some have heated together sulfur and saltpeter with honey, smoke and flames, and the result so that their hands and faces have been burnt and even the whole house burnt down. Nice. And then alchemists at the time called the discovery fire medicine. Just call it that again. Yeah. Um, and the, this discovery led to the invention of a bunch of weapons like fire arrows, explosives, naval bombs, fire, lancer, fire lances, and head cannons. Or hand cannons. Head cannons. <laughs> um, paper making is the art of making paper. Cool. Um, used Never for like, thought. I know. Used for writing, um, printing, and packaging. It's traditionally traced to China um, 105 AD when a an official, like court official, imperial court official named Kai Lun, which was during the Han Dynasty, created paper using mulberry, based fibers, fishnets, old rags, and hemp waste to like make a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, although some archaeological discovery recently said that maybe it was actually like first made in 8 BC. So like that would be. 115 years earlier than... It's actually not that long in the grand scheme of things. No. Yeah. So hemp paper was used in China for wrapping and padding since the 8th century um, BCE, and paper with legible Chinese writings on it had been dated to the 3rd century. And by the 6th century in China, sheets of paper were beginning to be used for toilet paper. (laughs) During the Tang Dynasty, which was 618 to 907, paper was folded and sewn into square bags to preserve the flavor of tea. And then the Song Dynasty, which was 960 to 1279, was the first government to issue paper currency. Oh. Very cool. Um, and then... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks a lot for paper currency. I mean... Yeah. Not th- I don't even use cash anymore. I don't. I feel bad to the... What was it? The Song Dynasty. We don't even yeah. use it anymore. Um, so printing is the last great invention. Um, and Movable a, type. Yes, which is one of the way, one of the things the Chinese invented. So printing is, you know, producing text and images. And it evolved from, like, just kind of, like, rubbing ink and, like, stone chiseling and whatever. Um, one of the first types of printing that they invented was woodblock printing. So basically you take a block of wood and um, it's prepared as a relief pattern. So everything that is supposed to appear as white is cut away with a knife. Mm-hmm. And everything that's supposed to be black is what's left. Um, and then you kind of, like, would stamp or rub to make whatever it is that you're printing. And then that evolved into movable type, which is, like, kind of what I think most people think about when they think about, like, old-timey printing is you have, like, big drawers with all the letters and stuff yeah. like that in it, and you kind of set everything in, and then you can mass produce at a quicker pace. God, that would take forever. I know. They said that it was, like, it would take forever, but if you were trying to print a book, it was probably the best way to do it. Um, and it was developed, movable type was developed in China around 1040 A.D., during the Northern Song Dynasty, using ceramic. So that's mm. kind of cool. Um, it was not Gutenberg. Gutenberg, you know, industrialized it. Thanks a lot, Germany. <laughs> um, so are these really the four most important inventions? There's a, a book called, Are the Four Major Inventions the Most Important? <laughs> um, and a Chinese historian, Deng Yinke, writes, <clears throat> quote, the four inventions do not necessarily summarize the achievements of science and technology in ancient China, the four inventions were regarded as the most important Chinese advancements in science and technology simply because they had a prominent position in the exchanges between the East and the West and acted as a powerful dynamic in the development of capitalism in Europe. So I think that's another point to think about, too, is, like, the difference between culture in the East versus culture in the West. Like, during the scientific revolution, like, the explosion of capitalism was happening. Yeah. And that was very much not happening in the East at the time. And so we think, like... Capitalism is advancement, and Mm -hmm. that's when we kind of are introduced to the idea of, like, first, second, and third world countries, which is, like, a racist sentiment. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Anyway, continuing the quote. Acted as a powerful dynamic in the development of capitalism in Europe. As a matter of fact, ancient Chinese scored 
much more than the four major inventions in farming, iron and copper, metallurgy, I can't pronounce that word, (laughs) exploitation of coal and petroleum, machinery, medicine, astronomy, mathematics, porcelain, silk, and winemaking. The numerous inventions and discoveries greatly advanced China's productive forces and social life. Many are at least as important as the four inventions, and some are even greater than the four. So... There you go. Before I let my segment go, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the most in- important invention of all time? Oh, my God. Time? Of all time? Yeah. Like, ever? Yeah. Well, to human race, like, fire probably is not an invention. More of a discovery. Mm-hmm. It could be an invention. Mm-hmm. I'll say fire. Nice. I have a couple lists of some of the... Some of the things people think are really important to human advancement. Printing press is a huge one. Mm -hmm. The light bulb. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. The steam engine. I barely even use steam engines. I know. (laughs) I know. I know. And then another one, optical lenses. So like glasses. Yeah. Actually, yes, because all these nerds (laughs) who invented stuff probably couldn't see. (laughs) I know. Well, optical lenses are also used in telescopes. Yeah. So that's another thing. Um, semiconductor electronics, which is different types of engines, which ha- kind of helped boom the industrial world. Penicillin. I'm allergic to penicillin, so nothing. Are you really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just get high. It's not, it's not that serious, but well, damn it. Um, and then like electricity, which I think is similar to, um, the light bulb. Yeah. Wheel and axle is another one. Mm-hmm. Written language. Sure. The computer. Well, yeah. And the internet. All of this is subjective. Like I said, like I said. Yeah, the internet is obviously very important. Is it the most important? It only came around in the past, like, 50 years. No, not even right. 50 years. Like, to 20, the general yeah. public, 20-ish years. Yeah. So what would you say are the most important inventions of the 20th century? Recently, like your lifetime. The internet. The internet's a huge one, right? Yeah. Um, I have a list here. 3D printing is big. Okay, but is it? I guess, well, it, people use it for real stuff. Yeah. We just want to use it to make tiny little figurines of ourselves. Right. <laughs> people are, like, making, like, real things that are really actually important. Um, what about augmented reality? What? Like VR? Mm-hmm. No, that's just scary. But it's, a, it's an incredible invention, isn't it? Yeah. But we don't know the effect it's had on society that's yet. That's true. That's true. What about there's capsule endoscopy? Endos- endoscopy? What, which like is when like they go into your butthole? You swallow a pill oh. and it has a camera in it. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty that's a pretty big one. That's cool. Um gene editing? No. I'm well, not depends, saying that okay. these are positive. I'm just saying Well it depends in what way. I don't know. Important. Gene editing maybe is used in like actual Right. But I'm 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 thinking of a like Gattaca type gene editing. <laughs> <laughs> which we all know how that ends. Yeah. What about retinal implants? Like LASIK? No, I think is like um, like like a thing that like brings back your sight. You can like get your retina changed oh. out. I think. <laughs> I need to get some new retinas. Mine are struggling. Um, online streaming is on this list, which is pretty big. A pretty big I deal. file that under internet. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, tokenization, which is like the chip on your um. Card. Your card. I guess. Touchscreen glass. Yeah. All these are interesting. Touchscreen glasses. Yeah. The world is ever-changing. Ever-changing. And we're excited to see what it comes up with next. Yes, we are. What are we going to invent? Oh, my God. We've already invented ourselves. You should invent shoes that are sponges so you can (laughs) mop your floor. (laughs) Don't steal that. We've already copyrighted it. I'm sure that already exists. Yeah, probably. I know, like, ones with little mop... Uh, strings exist already. Oh, my God. But I need sponges. Yeah. It'd be fun to walk around on. Exactly. Nice. So if you have any ideas about what the f- world's greatest inventions are... Leave it in a review for our... <laughs> Please do. We want to hear what you have to think. We care about your opinions. Okay. Now it's my turn. Finally. Oh, my God. I know. No, I went first last time. You're right. You're right. Um, okay. So mine is from the American Values Club crossword on February 5th by Ben Tausig, and it's um, 86 across, just a closer walk with blank, jazz funeral standard. Oh, I was thinking about this one. And the answer is just a closer walk with the. And I'm actually going to play a little clip of it for you guys and for Chelsea. Chelsea. 
Okay, so that was a little clip. I liked that. I kind of liked his voice. Is I know. He famous? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I should probably say who that was. That was the Bourbon Street Stompers. Ooh. And you can look it up on YouTube. Just look it up walk with the has 1.1 million views. So buy their music. Yeah. Um, no, they're good. I, the song is really long. This one is like eight minutes. Wow. Um, but he talks a little bit in the beginning. Anyways, uh, yeah, it, it sounds amazing. So. Uh, a jazz funeral. Most people probably know that's like the New Orleans style funeral. Uh, but the term jazz funeral was a, like back in the day when this was first starting. That term was used by outside observers. Um, people in the city of New Orleans like thought that term was kind of irreverent in a way. Um, the preferred description was funeral with music or a brass band funeral because jazz wasn't real. It wasn't the main point. Right. Um, it, it's yeah, not, of course. It's not even technically jazz. It's like a mix of jazz and, and brass bands. Okay. Uh, so, But within the last 30 years, the term jazz funeral is now like used and accepted by locals. So it's fine to use now. Okay. 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 Just I me. would not be able to tell the difference between jazz and brass bands. Oh, no. Me neither. But that's just yeah. me. Uh, no, I don't know anything. So uh, the tradition, like a lot of traditions in New Orleans, is a blend of cultures, mainly European and West African. So in the 1800s, European military bands used brass bands, and a brass band is made up of a tuba, trombones, trumpets, clarinet and or saxophone, snare drum, and a bass drum. All the instruments are like kind of small and easily portable, so the band can march and move everywhere. Nice. I used to play the clarinet. Oh yeah, you could have been in a. I could have been in a brass a brass band. Brass band. I was in a jazz band once too. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And um, the clarinet and the oboe were already taken up in terms of like positions to play, and so they made me play um, drums, which is completely different than the clarinet. Yeah. <laughs> and I had such anxiety about it that the band leader had to constantly call me in his office. And eventually, he nicked that whole song because I couldn't play the drums, and we ended up performing. With plastic bags, doing like a. Oh my god! I don't know what what that man was thinking, Mr. Mosley. If you're listening out there, what were you thinking? Well, I'm glad that hasn't still affected you to this day. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't care at all. Um, okay, so at Sorry. the same time of these brass bands, uh, there were African traditions of playing music and dancing in the ring shout during Sunday gatherings of slaves in Congo Square. And there were also Creoles and free people of color who were professional musicians during the time of slavery in New Orleans. This is related to voodoo, too, a little bit probably, because yes. that's where they gathered at Congo Square. Mm-hmm. Um, after the emancipation of 1865, the first black brass bands began performing in public places, including business openings, baseball games, and funerals. Very nice. Jazz began to emerge as a musical form around 1900 and had a huge influence on New Orleans black brass bands. And a lot of famous jazz musicians, including Louis Armstrong, had played in brass bands. And a lot of jazz bands at the time doubled as brass bands by replacing piano, bass, and banjo with tubas and drums. Yes! So that's kind of the difference, I guess, between jazz and brass band. Jazz has pianos, bass, and banjo, and brass bands have tubas and drums. I gotta get me a tuba. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Why get a tuba when you can be a tuba? <laughs> I feel like playing, like, in in middle school or in my high school, there were a lot of different musicians there. And I always felt like I felt bad for people who played, like, tuba because no one would ask you to play that at a party. Right. You know, as opposed to, like, guitar or, like, piano or something. Right. Well, my brother played the damn... Um, trombone. Trombone. And it's just, like, this massive thing. Like, when he extends it all the way out, it's basically his whole darn bedroom. <laughs> and you're like, you don't want to be the weirdo playing the trombone. No, you, you be- don't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you really love it, if you're do passionate it. about it, do it. Don't let us stop you. No, no, no. Don't let us. Okay. So a typical funeral with music, a.k.a. jazz funeral, begins with a march from the home, funeral home, or the church to the cemetery. And throughout the march, the band plays som- somber songs and hymns. However, after members of the procession say their final goodbye, so they either like bury the body once they're leaving the cemetery to go back home, um, the music gets more upbeat. There's uh, what's called cathartic dancing and handkerchief twirling, and onlookers are encouraged to join, and the people who follow the brass band are called the second line. Hmm. Two common somber songs that they play on the way to the cemetery are Nearer My God to Thee and Just a Clo- 
Closer Walk With Thee, which is a song we just played. And later, more upbeat tunes frequently include When the Saints Go Marching In and Didn't He Ramble. If you remember from my Sesame Street episode, Jim Hansen, or Henson requested When the Saints Go Marching In at his funeral. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love this. Um, but they also have uh, Just a Closer Walk With Thee does have a more upbeat. Well, as the song goes on, it gets more upbeat. So I'm going to play um, the upbeat version. Nice. So yeah, it's really just more of a celebration of yeah. life at that point. Um, so this is mostly a black tradition in New Orleans, and it should come as no surprise in the early 1900s, white people had a problem with this, quote, hot music being played at a funeral. They saw it as disrespectful. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> But after the 1960s, the tradition began spreading among all races and religions in New Orleans. Okay, um, okay. Yeah. People are like, oh, wait, actually, it is kind of nice to celebrate life. Shaking my and damn head. And just do something, like... Fun for yeah. once in your friggin' life. All these, like, white Christians are like, meh, meh, meh. Music at a funeral? You know? <laughs> You're supposed to be pious and miserable all the time. Dancing at a funeral? Um, okay, so today <laughs> it's not as common as it used to be. The majority of people who have jazz funerals are musicians themselves, connected to the music industry, or members of various social aid and pleasure clubs. At first I thought it was social aid space pleasure clubs. I was like, what's a pleasure club? But <laughs> then I looked it up. Social aid and pleasure clubs, a.k.a. SAPCs, are groups in, I don't know if they exist elsewhere, but in New Orleans, it, from what I gathered, it looks like they organize second line parades okay. um, in other I see. Like such events. It sounds a lot more fun than funeral stuff, like pleasure clubs. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be disrespectful, but when they, you were yeah, like, no, pleasure club, I was like, clubs, what, I was like what in the goddamn hell? But no, okay, apparently yeah. not. <laughs> um, I stand corrected. So a side note, you can if you go to New Orleans, you can actually pay for your own second line parade to follow you around for six to eight blocks. And it's 1200 to $1,500, which is not a bad deal if you get a group together. Yeah, no. Like if you're going there for... You know, yeah, a wedding, wedding or something. Yeah, that's probably what it's for. Yeah, or I think people do it for like bachelor parties, bachelorette oh, parties. Yeah, I actually, when I was in New Orleans, I saw a second line parade. Um, it's cool. cool. Yeah, I wonder if I did too. I feel like it's they're pretty common there. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about above ground burials in New Orleans. Yes. Uh, so if you've ever been to New Orleans and you've probably gone to the French Quarter and seen St. Louis Cemetery Number One, there's three of them. That's mm-hmm. the main one. That's the one where Marie. Uh, yeah, is supposedly buried. It's not like 100% confirmed. I got to go in before they closed it to outside people because like, they closed it. You can't go in anymore. Oh, yeah. I, I w- to see her. I went into on a, on a tour. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah. So if you ever see like a traditional New Orleans cemetery, the graves are all above ground. They're actually called cities of the dead because mm-hmm. it kind of looks like little buildings everywhere. And street signs have there's like street signs with street names and stuff. Right. Um, it's really interesting. So. Uh, why do they bury their bodies above ground? Um, some say it's because of the high water level in New Orleans. Uh, they're really like they're below sea level. Yes. So it was said that bodies buried in the ground would come up during floods, which is not only scary but also oh. a health hazard. Yes. Um, and then I was reading that they used to like drill holes then in, because coffins are like filled with air. They would float. But then I read that they like drilled holes in the coffins so that the water would. You know, if it flooded, water would get inside. But then that's, like, just not – that's a health hazard because then the water is being contaminated. Right. Um, however, uh, that that's, like, what I – that's what they told me on the tour and that's stuff. That's what I heard, too. But I was reading online that uh, above-ground burial is common in Spain and France. Yes. Before, and they, they don't have, like, super high water levels. Um And a lot of early New Orleans settlers are from Spain and France. So right. it could just be the tradition of that because there also are a lot of places with – who are below sea level that don't do above ground burials. So, you know, could be a a combination of both. Yeah. So this is how it works. There's like tombs uh, made of stone and concrete or whatever. And there's a top level and then there's a bottom compartment. So the deceased are put in the top level and they are, you know, put there. Yeah. (laughs) What's like sealed in there. Um, And then because of the hot subtropical climate, the tomb becomes an oven and the high heat causes the body to decompose rapidly in a process that is 
been compared to a slow cremation. So within about a year, only bones are left, and typically a family would own one tomb. So once a body is decomposed, the remains are swept through an opening that lead to the bottom compartment of the tomb, making room for a new body to be placed at the top level. Holy crap. So eventually all the, like, the family's remains are kind of at, at the bottom. And I remember when I was there on the tour, they said, someone asked, like, well, what if someone, a, a new family member dies, like, before the year's up? So, right. like, you can't really put them in there because the body's right. still doing yeah. its thing. So they have these, like, temporary tombs that you can, oh. like, keep the body in um, until, like, the family tomb is ready. And there's also different rules, like, for, for different religions. And um, if, like, a child is buried, then it takes... It's like three years, I believe. I didn't look that up. This is just for my memory of the tour. But there's like different rules and stuff on, you know, timing of everything. God, who has the job of sweeping the damn remains? So that part, like the family isn't there for it. They say it's done in a very respectful way and it's whoever is, you know, running the cemetery. It's not like, a th- like you don't go to like see that happen. Right. Ooh. They just take care of it. God bless whoever it is that's just sweeping those things. Yeah. That is a job I do not want. Well, it's just bones at that point. Do you want to sweep bones? No, I don't. <laughs> okay. But it's I'm not just saying. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm very I mean, I'm very appreciative of that person existing because and, I can never. And I don't think it's like a perfect. I don't know if it's like a perfect skeleton. I guess it would be. I don't know how how like decomposed it becomes. Right. No. Yeah. That's all of those questions are in my mind, and that's why yeah. I really appreciate whoever it is that's got <laughs> that that big old. What is it? Those long toothbrush brooms, like, like the ones they have at the airport. Yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Not to be disrespectful, but <laughs> holy heck, in a hen basket. Um, okay, so <laughs> I want to talk about some other funeral traditions from yes. around the world. Uh, I got these from ideas.ted.com, an article by Kate Torgovnik May called "Death Is Not the End: Fascinating Funeral Traditions from Around the Globe." In Tana Taraja in eastern Indonesia, funerals are lively affairs that involve the whole village. They can last anywhere from days to weeks. Families save up for years to afford the big celebrations, and until that time, the dead relative is simply referred to as, quote, a person who is sick or even one, quote, who is asleep. They are laid down in special rooms in the family home where they are symbolically fed, cared for, and taken out, very much still a part of their relatives' lives. So, I knew about this one. It's yeah. very interesting. So it could be like that for years until the funeral. Mm-hmm. They're ready to like throw the funeral. Uh, there's a new trend in South Korea called burial beads. So in 2000, a law was passed in South Korea saying that anyone who buried a loved one has to remove the grave after 60 years due to overcrowding. Oh, Christ. Which makes sense. I mean, that's why I saw about cemeteries. Yeah. It's like, hello, we're eventually going to run out of places to put people. Yeah. Uh, So cremation has, of course, become more popular because of this, but so has uh, burial beads in which cremated remains get turned into gem-like beads in turquoise, pink, or black, and they're typically kept in decorative glass containers in the home. Mm. And they're really pretty. Yeah. I think the article I read said they they also, like, did this in the United States but didn't catch on. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't do something like that. Yeah, no, it's – I feel like that's – I should not be taking up any space on this earth, is all I have to say. Um, The tink – Tinguin ethnic group in the Philippines dresses bodies in their best clothes, sits them on a chair, and places a lit cigarette in their lips. I love that. Yeah. That reminds me of, are you going to talk about El Muerto Parar? No, but you can talk about it. Okay. I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, and I apologize to my best friend's film, who is (laughs) exactly about this. Go ahead. Um, Do you want to talk about it now? Sure. So there's like a a tradition in... um, South America called something like El Muerto. There's a P word, parar, parar, parar. I don't know. Something like that. I don't know. And it's basically like p- sitting the person, the deceased one, your loved one, placing them, sitting them, positioning them in a way that they would have been in real life. Um, and you so mean when they were alive. When they were alive. <laughs> so you might see pictures of this online where you see somebody who's deceased, but they're sitting at a card table playing cards and they're wearing their favorite outfit mm-hmm. or sitting on a, a motorcycle. And basically that's where the wake happens. Like the family throws a big party. You sh- arrive. You pay your respects to the, the person. You take pictures with them. And then like that's kind of how it is until they bury them. And my really good friend had a film that they made um, about – kind of around this subject where somebody returns home to Puerto Rico after a really long time away and 
to see their brother's wake and he walks into the wake and their brother is um, hooked up to this mechanism like every couple minutes like a song comes on he starts dancing like his hips start shaking mm-hmm. and the brother is like freaks out and he's like this is disrespectful and it's kind of like learning about how to reconnect with your culture after being so f- away for so long but yeah yeah that's an in- interesting one yeah for sure um Okay, Buddhists in Mongolia and Tibet have something called the sky funeral, which they've been practicing for thousands of years. They believe that spirits move on and bodies should be returned to the earth. So bodies are chopped up and into pieces and left on a mountaintop where they are exposed to natural elements. Hmm. That takes care of the... All of that. Yeah. Um, Probably getting eaten, honestly. Yeah, by vultures. Yeah. The Malagasy people of Madagascar have a famous ritual called... Fama Dihana, or the turning of the bones. Once every five or seven years, a family has a celebration at their crypt, <laughs> ancestral crypt, where the bodies, which are wrapped in cloth, are um, sprayed with wine or perfume, and a band plays at the lively event. Family members dance with the bodies. For some, it's a chance to pass family news to the deceased and ask for their blessings. For others, it's a time to remember and tell stories of the dead. Hmm. Ghana has something called fantasy coffins. I couldn't tell how common this actually is there. BuzzFeed did an article on it, so I'm kind of uh, sure, yeah. skeptical. But um, they are custom-made custom or custom-made coffins for the deceased that uh, have to do with either what they did for a living or their interests. And some examples are an eagle for a chief, an ear of corn for a farmer, and a Mercedes-Benz for a successful businessman. Okay. But the coffins are really interesting. I mean, you should just like look up pictures of them. They're very... Elaborate. It, yeah, they're not your they're not your grandma's coffin. <laughs> okay, uh, green funerals are becoming more and more popular in the U.S. This involves um, skipping the whole embalming practice and concrete vaults and opting for biodegradable coffins, um, like natural bur- burials. And the Green Burial Council has approved forty environmentally friendly cemeteries in the U.S. Only forty, which they say is a big jump from before, but that doesn't seem like a lot. Wow, There's, I would be interested in doing something like that. Yeah, for something sure. environmentally friendly, of course, but. There's a company called Eternal Reefs that compresses remains into a sphere that is attached to a reef in the ocean, providing a habitat for sea life. Oh. That's kind of cool. Nice. Um, okay. So if you're interested in learning more about funeral processes, you should look up Caitlin Dowdy, a.k.a. the Millennial Mortician. Uh, she has a series on YouTube called Ask a Mortician, which I've watched. And she has a, a couple published books two of which are called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory and From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. So Caitlin, she went to mortuary school. Mortuary school. Yeah, became certified and worked in a traditional funeral home. And her whole idea is she wants to kind of change like the way the Western world views death and kind of like our death phobia and our fear mm-hmm. of talking about death. Um, and she also wants to change the way funeral practices are done. And she wants to ease people's minds about like death. She thinks if you talk about it more, you have like less anxiety surrounding it. So I haven't, I've watched her YouTube channel. I haven't read her book, but I really do want to um, read it because I noticed in a lot of the comments people were saying like, you know, I was really scared of death or like my mom died and this book really b- brought me like a lot of peace and stuff. So if that's something that you struggle with, you know, look her up, Caitlin Doughty, or just look up Millennial Mortician. It's probably easier to remember. <laughs> um, okay. So she is the founder of the Order of the Good Death, which is a death acceptance organization that aims to dispel the death phobia that exists in the Western world. According to their website, they are a movement that encourages people to speak openly about death, dying, and corpses. It seeks to eliminate the silence around death-related topics and decrease anxiety surrounding death. It also believes that cultural censorship of death and dying does more harm than good, that open discussions about death should be accepted as a natural human curiosity, that families should have full rights to care for the bodies of their loved ones without the intervention from funeral businesses, and the end-of-life care should be diversified and performed in ways that cause less damage to the environment than our current practices. Damn, girl. So I didn't. in a lot of states, it's actually you need to have like funeral, like a funeral home or something deal with Right. Like legally, they have to, you can't just like do what you want to do with the body, which is like, it kind of makes sense. I think most people wouldn't know what to do with a body, but her ideal situation is like families are able to like choose what they want to do. There's no like embalming. Bodies are just like naturally put into the earth, not in like the concrete vaults that they have now in cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, she's trying to, you know, I might shake look that up. up. Yeah. I don't think, when I think about, 
I don't have like a phobia of being older or getting older necessarily, but I think um, or like the act of dying isn't frightening to me. The thing that freaks me out about like death is the idea like we watched Hill House together mm-hmm. and like being in the like the mortuary yeah. where like all the dead bodies are. Like I don't think I could be around dead bodies or no. in like that like really sterile room where like there's tables and I just or yeah. looking at dead bodies like going to wakes is just like a thing I cannot do no dead bodies really like I I definitely have death phobia and a lot of anxiety around death and dead bodies really like I don't know I, I don't like them at all especially yeah. like at wakes and stuff because they don't look like I mean once they've been embalmed like they don't look we talked about yeah. this the other day it's fuck. Oh, but in other cultures like you know you were talking about some of the ones I was talking about it's less scary because they right. keep they keep the body like you know just in the right in the home or you know wrapped up in the one where they like turn the bones every seven years it's mm-hmm. like wrapped up in cloth but they're not scared to like go in there and you know right exactly so yeah yeah something about other cultures you know Do have better like acceptance of right and of i think and stuff. for us it's a, a, probably partially like the christian influence on our lives and like the, the idea of mysticism behind, like, the afterlife and, yeah. like, you know, keeping people ignorant of what is out there. And that yeah. kind of, like, permeates um, into our culture in the West here. I did want to say there's um another death practice that I researched. Oh, I didn't research. Nicole researched. We were talking about it a while ago with our other friend. Um, but you can, like, send your ashes to get a diamond made out of them oh yeah i've heard about that before that'd be cool um i don't know how legit it is of course i don't know if you're just sending your ashes and someone's sending you like a blood diamond and you yeah. just have to kind of like accept that this is yeah right they're sending you a blood di- diamond they send you like a yeah. whatever those are the fake yeah exactly diamonds. anyway so that's another option for you out there yeah <laughs> i would love my get body scammed. to be used um to like be like a mushroom like how you know like it takes a while to grow mushrooms like in logs and stuff you can grow mushrooms from human bodies. I would fucking do that. I would donate my body to science. Yeah, well, that's probably exactly what I would and do, then too. And then be like, do whatever you... Actually, no, I feel like I would, like, ashes, like, be cremated and then, um, like, send someone on a journey to, like, put it, like, <laughs> say I want my ashes to be, like, at the top of this mountain or somewhere, right. like, some remote yeah. island somewhere. And they're like, well, I guess I have to go here. That is one a reason to... That like, is the plot line of God of War. Yeah. And that is the plot line of Fall Al, Far, Far Cry 3, I believe, or Far Cry 4. So I want to send one on a real life video yeah. game. You got to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, happy living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that note... <laughs> Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. We had us. A, a fun episode today. Yeah, it took a lot of really a huge roller coaster there. <laughs> um, you can find us on the internet if you want to keep talking to us about anything that you've heard us say, or if you think we're stupid, don't Let tell us. us. Know. <laughs> uh, you can find find us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls and Instagram at the Good Evening Girls. And please, if you haven't already, leave us a review yes. and rate us. We would really appreciate it. It's always good to see what you guys think of us. Yeah. Um, uh, only the good things, of Only course. the good things. Please, no negative reviews. No, but we would never tell you what to do. Ever. Ever. We're not this kind of people. No. Um, but we'll talk to you next week. Silk suede swag, baby. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.